Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people going through different challenges and how they overcome them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. If you love this conversation, we'd love you to like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero story. And in this episode, I met with Alan Stevens and we had a really deep and open conversation. He shared a story that really was part of most of his adult life and the impacts of abuse and how that's impacted all of his relationships, the way he's related to people, and inadvertently was the catalyst for him changing his direction and learning how to engage and overcome those blocks and become a, a far more connected person to others. Such There were some really beautiful, you know, synchronistic moments through his life that he shares the connection with the uh, the Indigenous in Australia, just everything was just beautiful. Alan speaks very openly and he knows the importance of connection and sharing story. So he talks about a topic that we all can relate to, but often men don't talk about it. So I was really grateful for him to come to this conversation and share what he did. It was really beautiful. So yes, I, I invite you to sit back and enjoy this conversation with Alan Stevens. Hello and welcome. It is another episode of Kintsugi Heroes and I'm here today with Alan Stevens. How are you going, Alan? Pretty good, thanks, Adeline. How are you? I'm really well. I'm so grateful that you're here with me today. I'm excited to speak with you and thank you for coming along to help share your journey. Thank you very much. Well, let's get into this, shall we? Can you take us back? Take us back to the start, where, wherever the start is, and give us a sense of what was going on, a bit about the context before, I guess, the these things started happening or the event. I'm keen to understand. Well, it was one major event in my life, but there were a number of things that sort of flowed along leading up to it. And it was a complete change in my uh, journey around about the age of 50, but before that, when I was 23 years old, I was um, I used to uh, live in Sydney and I worked in Sydney, did all my training down there, came to Newcastle and was put in charge of a group of men who were all older than me. So I was 23, my second in charge was 38, and the rest of the team were older as well. So that was the beginning of, you know, having grown up pretty much as a loner, with my father died when I was three, I lived with my mother and sister and spent most of my time in my own company. So now I'm in charge of people. I had to get them on side. So that was a big steering of um, my beginnings and the direction I started with. Then uh, as I uh, moved along, I joined the surf club in my early 30s and uh, was um, talked into being a patrol captain. And the reason they wanted me was because nobody in the, uh, there was a whole bunch of people in the group that nobody wanted. So they gave them to me as a patrol. And I managed to turn that into the patrol of the year. So it went from being, you know, the youngest in employment and trying to get people on side and having that challenge, always been a loner before that, and now at the age in my early 30s being in charge of a group of men who 
again, uh, same age as me at this point, but now all saying that um, uh, I didn't have the experience. But because I turned that patrol into the patrol of the year, the uh, committee talked me into becoming the club captain, the zone supervisor of three beaches. So I'd had a second challenge. My whole life has been about building relationships and the challenges that go with that. Then uh, my first wife decided to leave and I had three boys to raise on my own. They were four, 11 and 12. And so that was another challenge. So from being the youngest in uh, employment to being the least experienced to being, well, the only way to put it right out of my depth, raising three sons on my own, having taken redundancy from telecom, at the same time uh, starting my own business as well. And in that year, a lot of challenges. Um, uh, my mother passed away. My, had, I had two friends, one who had committed suicide and one who died of cancer. So it was a pretty rough time and the business didn't really survive either. We also went to the wall with that. So uh, that was the beginning of the, uh, the challenges. But then I sort of sat back, became a, what to call it, a, um, a mortgage broker and was working with people there. And that seemed to be a, a normal, natural type of uh, job to be in. But as I got to about 48, I'd met another uh, woman, got married. That was where things really turned upside down because I was about 12 years older than her and I thought, you know, all my Christmas had come at once, had this beautiful wife, great relationships, everything was going perfectly. And then one day she wanted to catch up for lunch. Now, you can imagine the situation. We're in one of the busiest sections in Hamilton in Newcastle, in Beaumont Street, where all the eateries are. She wanted to meet at a cafe, uh, the uh, uh, Northern Star. It's a nice little Greek uh, uh, cafe, very nicely laid out, pictures on the wall, tile, um, tiles on the table. You can imagine the colour and everything else. The place is fairly quiet. There's a lot of people in there waiting for their food, and I got there early to make sure I got a table because it usually gets packed. And uh, you know, by this stage, the whole place is full. People lined up at the door. She came in, she sat down, and the first words to me were, Alan, I want a divorce. And so that completely floored me. Now, I knew that things were a bit tough between us. There was a difference in age. And I'd also grown up with boys don't cry, suck it up, keep it to yourself. So I didn't have the skills to communicate. And so I wasn't telling her what I was feeling. I don't think she was uh, uh, had a crystal ball, so she didn't know what was going on in my head either. At the same time, she wasn't talking to me. And so everything turned upside down. So at that point, that was when I... Uh, uh, withdrew again. I thought, right, time to spend some time on my own, except a friend of mine talked me into um, sharing a place with him and we moved into uh, the premises there because after all of that, I thought there's nothing much more. You know, this is what my life is. And my boys had grown up and moved back with their mother. Well, they moved out first of all and then the youngest one moved back with his mother. And uh, so I'm now on my own, whereas with the first time with the, my first wife left, I had the uh, saving grace of having three sons to raise. Mm. I had a business mm. that I just started. Mm. Now I was in a, you know, just uh, running in, in a career. At the same time, I didn't have my boys around me. And all I was doing was sharing a flat or a house with a friend of mine. And really, I mean, nowhere, having no idea where I was going. But through uh, some chance meetings, a friend, or first of all, some friends talked me back into uh, getting back into massage therapy. Because my second wife had taught, uh, taught me into being a massage therapist. She used to teach aromatherapy. When we split, I put that on hold. And, of course, uh, I 
didn't want to do that anymore, but a couple of mates taught me into giving them a massage and then taught me into opening my doors up again and you know, had people coming in. And I started getting terminally ill patients coming to me. Now, when some of them started reversing their conditions, I had no understanding what was going on. To me, that was totally bizarre. So through some chance meetings, met an Aboriginal group who invited me out bush. And over a period of uh, a year, learning culture, going out every weekend, they invited me through uh, initiation. So I went through tribal initiation for boyhood and manhood. So this is where my life started to change direction. And how old were you then? Sorry. At that point, I was uh, just turned uh, 50. Wow. Okay. So the, uh, from the marriage to all of this happening was about four years. And it was quite a, you know, uh, things happening in a lot of different directions. I didn't know whether I was coming or going at times. But one of the things I realized that where I thought I was making plans in my life, I wasn't. We're controlled by our environment. And that's what I realized that uh, whatever happens around us, we make choices based on those things. And we think we're in control, but really we're at the mercy of our environment and how we let those things affect us. I realized that um, if I kept wanting other things to change, blaming other people for the situations that were happening, I wasn't going to move anywhere. So that's when I started looking, going, okay, how can I look at the things that I'm doing? How can I improve things? How can I take responsibility for everything? Working with the Aboriginals, it was all about uh, love, humility and respect were the three pillars. And that's where my journey started to change in a big way. What um, You've mentioned a few things on the, on the path to, to this point of meeting the Aboriginals. What were the biggest challenges that you had? Obviously, there were the relationship challenges with both the wives you know obviously at two distinct points of your son's lives um yeah what what were the key kind of themes or the challenges that you experienced that made those things particularly difficult well growing up I was always told um by one of my uncles I'd never amount to anything I was told when I left school don't use your brains Alan you haven't got them use your hands you're good with your as a carpenter and that's where I started my first career as a carpenter. So you listened to, the, the, to those words. You took the yeah, advice. Listen to the people. This is the problem as, as youngsters and that we trust the people around us. If they're bigger than us, they're older than us, they must be right. Mm. And so you take that on and we program ourselves. It's always deeply programmed. Now, that's one of the reasons I kept to myself all the time because I thought if I'm around other people, I'm always going to be found to be wrong. And I needed to feel good about myself. And that meant being on my own and therefore relationships weren't a key issue in my life so you didn't trust people uh, people in a relationship to make you feel good that's it because you know when you've got people around you you're comfortable with the you know and happy with the people that are there when things are going well mm. but when they're not we want to withdraw from it and pull away but what you don't have is the thing that you yearn and i didn't have relationships and so i've uh, yearned for those all my life and i thought by being in a relationship, that everything was fine. But what I've learned over time, the relationship that was most important to me out of every other relationship was the one with myself. And that's the yeah, later lessons I learned along the way. So when you, when you met the Aboriginals, tell me a bit about the meeting with the, I guess, the person that, that invited you in and what was it that captured your attention enough and your interest to want to spend more time with them? Well, how it came about in the first place, a mate of mine was um, working for the Dole at the time, and he said there's a a um, 
uh, an opening at the moment. We're going to go over to one of the islands and we're planting trees. It's a, an Aboriginal opening day. Just come along and get your hands dirty. You're spending too much time in your head. So I went there and we started um, planting trees. And I spoke to one of the elders and uh, he invited me to go and have a talk to him later on because I told him what was happening with the massage therapy and these terminal patients. Anyway, the day I went and saw him, he said, I'll, I'll have to ring one of our healers. He said, I'll get the women to ring. And I looked at him and he recognised that, I, you know, it's a, why do they have to ring? And he said, oh, she runs a women's refuge. And the moment she hears a man's voice, she'll hang up if she doesn't recognise it. And the chances is she won't recognise mine. And so they set the call up. He put me on the phone and uh, she said to me, well, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, what can I, you know, what do you want me to do? She said, I'll come here. So next day, this is where she wouldn't answer the phone at the refuge. I'm invited to the refuge because I told her what was happening in the work I was doing. She said, oh, you've got to come and see me. Mm-hmm. When I sat down and spoke to her, she said, well, what you're talking about is older than I know. I can't help you. And I said, well, what do I do? She said, I've got some other elders I need to connect you to. About three days later, I got a phone call from one of the elders. He, he said, what are you doing Friday night? And I said, well, you tell me. He said, you come and camping. So I went out, and one of the things is about oh, 10 men sitting around the campfire. And there's a young fellow, 14 years old, who walked up, uh, who was dragging his leg, and the guys asked him what was wrong, and he talked about how he'd injured his hip. And... Uh, they talked about the pain. I watched their expressions because I was looking to see what their reactions were going to be. And not one man was disrespectful to him or teased him or anything else. They just had compassion. And Uncle John, who was a senior elder, just pointed to me and he said, oh, he's a healer. He'll fix you. And I went, how do I fix him when I've got no massage table, no oils, and we're standing in the middle of the forest? Did you did you feel that you were a healer? Like when, they, when he said you're a healer, did you, did you align with that? description that label it was one thing that when i looked at it and i realized that when i work with people people give themselves titles and i look at well i don't heal people i facilitate things i was a facilitator of healing i wasn't the healer Mm -hmm. i believe that the when you set the situation up right for the other person they do their own healing because what i was actually doing was not only massaging and using aromatherapy oils but I was using colour, I was using sound, but I was mainly using um, NLP as well. Mm-hmm. I'd sit and talk to somebody, find out all about them, what they were going through, and that would give me more information about how to treat the physical ailment they had. And that's when they were uh, telling me that in some cases I was having out-of-body experiences and things like that, and that added to the whole uh, mystique of the whole thing. But then when some of them were coming back and saying that they'd been retested for their cancers and uh, the one guy who was on the transplant list for uh, new kidneys and came off the list, I thought, what in the world's going on? I'm a technical person. So all of this was quite strange to me, but I was open to learn. It's one of the things I've learned through my life, the most important thing I'll ever learn is the next thing I learn after I think I know everything. And so with that, I decided to keep an open mind. I thought nobody else has got any answers. They're the oldest living uh, culture on the planet. If they haven't got the answers, what am I going to do? So give it a try. Well, I took the young fella aside when I was told this, manipulated his leg, spoke to him for a little while, and 10 minutes later he, he's kicking a football with the other young guys. And I'm sitting at the campfire. So on the outside, yes, I'm looking. You know, so, yes, I do this all day, every day sort of thing. On the inside, I'm going, what the wow? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, all the other uh, men around the campfire are looking at me. Then I found out there was a GP 
two physiotherapists and a chiropractor in the group. And he pointed to me, I'm the massage therapist. So at the end of the evening, there was a whole lot of other men. There was about 60 men. And as we were talking, uh, the um, Uncle John said to everybody, we'd like to know why all you guys have come back out here again or why you're here for the first time. I went to speak and he said, Alan, and his words were, Alan, you can shut up for a moment. I'll get to you in a minute. And I went, okay. The thing with the young fellow was a test and this was another test. I recognised that straight away. He asked some of the other men. One man said, oh, I was here a year ago and I've, this is my second time out here and I wanted to give back to the Aboriginals. And I watched their eyes roll. And I thought, whoops, you know, here's somebody who's going to come out and fix their problems. Mm. I don't think so. Anyway, he went through everybody else. He got back to me and he said, okay, Alan, can you tell everybody what it is, you know, why are you here? Tell everybody the same way you told me the other day. And I went, okay, of all this stuff happening in my life, I've got no answers and I believe that you guys have got the answers. I've got nothing but questions coming from me, but I'm hoping that you've got the answers for them. And what I did add to the end of it was, and by the way, I'm not here to fix your problems. I'm here for me. And I just watched the smiles. And that was when uh, Uncle John turned around and said, Rightio, what are you doing next month? And so I thought, you told me, you said you're coming camping again. And some of the other men said, why is he being invited back so soon? He said he does what you don't do. He said he listens. And so I actually had to get out there. I had to pick up one of the elders on the way. So when I'm driving him back, he said, look, I don't have a car. He said, and I want to get out of here every week. So how about you come out every Friday? We come out here, we camp. And then that one uh, Friday a month, you'll be with um, all the other men. And after a year, they just said to me one day, what are you doing next week? I went, same as last week. You know, so what I've been doing for the last year. And they said, no, you know, get in the vehicle. You're coming with us. And uh, I said, where? And they said, well, we'll just, you know, you'll come out and we'll tell you when we get there what it's about. And that was when I went through initiation. So that was the uh, tribal journey. And that's when I really started to appreciate the, support of having the right people around you the finding the right people but that love humility and respect getting rid of the ego was i think the uh, the ego was something i was up against with a lot of people but also had my own if you feel insecure i guarantee your ego is going to come out the most noisy and uh, blustful pe people are usually the most insecure so i realized to be able to sit in my quietness and just take things in so with that the, the year of going out to camp every weekend, did you talk about your fears, your past? Did, did it come up in conversation or were you really there to learn from them? The, there was always plenty of questions from them. I had the questions around my healing. They were, had questions around who I was as a person. And so if they asked me questions about it, I would talk to them, be totally open with them. But uh, as I said, I was there mainly to learn for myself, to get the answers that I needed. And as I've always believed, I've got two eyes, two ears and one mouth, and I use them in that proportion. And when I am using the mouth, I ask questions. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I don't want to be the dummy. But at the same time, I don't want to be the smartest because if I am, if I am I'm not learning from anybody. You need to uh, be open to always learn. And I, as I said, my attitude is I'll always be learning until the day I die. I'm a part-time uh, teacher, but a full-time learner. So during that year, did you find yourself coming out of your little shell more and more? A lot more. I was able to find that I could just have conversations with people. I wasn't looking for that relationship. 
I was mainly looking at understanding myself to be able to connect with other people. I realized I needed to understand me. Not understanding me, I then knew how to uh, speak to other people. And so that um, led on to, you know, changing the approach where before I was chasing other people to have a relationship. Now I was looking at letting the relationships come to me. You know, complete turnaround in the way I was doing things. And that's led on to a lot of things since then. You know, the camp that uh, sitting around the campfire with the men led on to the campfire project that I also run and the business of smiles. Uh, looking back over the years, not having relationships around me and now the number of relationships I've got, uh, it's definitely chalk and cheese. I just want to really highlight that because I think you just summed it up right then. You know, you didn't have relationships in the past and now you do. You, you've learnt and, and you, by the sound of it, you learnt through figuring out how to have a relationship with yourself. If Looking back to your childhood and your upbringing, can you see where that was, was, I guess, initially created, that the sense of needing to just not have relationships? Did you not feel safe, not feel loved, you know, in, in that family environment? I didn't get on with the kids at school. I got bullied a lot. And uh, I was actually, uh, well, for a lot of people, it would probably be a major uh, situation. But I look back over all of my life. It's really just one of the, uh, the many events that happened. At the age of nine, I didn't feel that I belonged in the house with my mother and sister. My sister and I never really spoke. My mother was just busy getting on with, you know, looking after the house and, uh, and uh, keep me out of trouble. And uh, the end result was at the age of nine, with all the bullying and everything else, I actually tried to commit suicide. I climbed into my mother's um, pill cupboard and started taking as many pills as I could. And the fear I had was that I didn't just jump, jump into one bottle. I was taking selected pills from different bottles so I didn't get into trouble. And I'm thinking, I'm trying to take my life. This is stupid. At the same time, while I'm doing it, I'm thinking to myself, oh, everyone's going to be happy now, you know, when I'm gone. And all of mm -hmm. a sudden, I just had this feeling, why in the world was I trying to make everybody who was making me miserable happy? So I stopped taking the uh, the pills, and I thought, and my mother never knew that I even did it. Were you sick? Did you yeah. get sick and have some? No, reaction? I was in the process of, of taking. You know, you know, I, I, put, I didn't even know it was in some of the bottles. Mm -hmm. I know that some of them have been there for a long time. They actually they were the old tablets that are crystallized. You know, the cupboard was just full of pills of different times. So, you know, I didn't fall pregnant from it. So I don't know if the pill was in amongst it. Uh, antibiotics, I don't know what was in there, but um, it was getting to that point where that, that message came through to me, why was I making everybody else happy? Mm. But, uh, it was probably the timing of that. If that had been a bit slower in thinking of that, it might have been a different situation. I uh, lived on anger, but as I was getting older, everybody said, oh, you've got to get rid of your anger. Well, the anger was what kept me alive. But then as I went along, I also learned that um, every emotion, we have every emotion in us. Every emotion has a place. If somebody attacks your family, yeah, get angry. You have a right to. You know, it's part of the protection of your family. But to get angry because of uh, other reasons, no. So every emotion has its place. It's how we apply it and when we apply it as to whether it's appropriate or not. Sorry for the interruption. This is Ian Westmoreland, the founder of Kintsugi Heroes, and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes. 
Our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support. If you would like to help us continue to produce more hero stories and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kidsuperheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kintsugiheroes.com.au. Now let's get back to the story. Can you take me back to, I guess, our bush with the Aboriginals and talk to me about the initiation? So when they invited you to do this, what was your first thought and feeling? Well, I thought... You know, when they first mentioned, I thought, wow, this is a great honour. But as I was leading up to it, the only thought that went through in my mind was, who am I? You know, I'm, I'm a white guy. Both my parents were English. Going through initiation, just ego and everything else. Now, when I first moved into the house with uh, the mate a couple of years earlier, it was down near the beach. Um, four bedroom uh, place, and he was bringing his two younger daughters over on a regular basis to stay there. And I said, Right, well, I then, then get to sharing everything 50 50. <clears throat> I get the choice to pick my bedroom. And when I walked to the different rooms and walked out on the balcony on the first floor, I was looking around and I felt this room felt really right. And as I looked down, there's a diamond python, a snake in the gutter right next to my feet, just laying there looking at me. I called uh, Mark, the flatmate, up. He came up. This, then the snake reared up as soon as he walked up. As soon as he walked back, it laid itself down again. Wow. Because I, just before then I'd been saying, you know, God, give me a sign. Let me know whether I'm doing the right thing, moving in with Mark and sharing a place and everything else. I should be off on my own or what should I do? Well, just before I went out, boys, now that snake, we managed to catch it because it was going to go down the drain pipe. And we thought down the guttering, that, what are we, you know, will it survive? So we managed to catch it and put it in a, a box and I took it to one of the reserves, which was right away from our place, instead of just taking a couple of streets away because it was bushland back behind us. But um, So I know it wasn't the same snake, but the week before I was about to go out, here I am at the front door again just saying, yeah, come on, God, give me another sign. Am I doing the right thing? Should I be going out? Well, I'm in the kitchen and uh, one of the uh, friends came up. He usually just walks straight into the, the front door goes straight to the fridge and feeds himself. And he's standing out on the steps and not coming in. I looked out the window and I said, what's wrong? What are you standing there for? And he's pointing at the, at the um, top of the stairs. So I went to the door and had a look, another diamond python. And uh, it's just sitting there uh, reared up. And I said to him, you know, just step back, it'll go. And as it's going towards the uh, gutter, oh, sorry, to the garden on the other side, I don't know why I said, I said, oh, that's all right, old fella, keep going. And it turned around and came back and came to the front door. I had to close the white, the fly screen door because it was going to come in the house. And I went down the side of the house. There's a long crack at the end on the top of the veranda and next to the house. It's laying in that. So I walked out and I just stroked it. And it then went down under the house and disappeared. You know, so I had all this stuff going through in my mind, you know, because my background was technical, as I said, but all this stuff that I would have classed as new age or esoteric and all that was now, you know, really filling into my life. I was thinking when I went out, this was really great. Um, it's, uh, but as far as what we go through out there, cannot talk about that. Mm. Because, you know, uh, if I'm there with the other men who have been through, we look at each other. We know what we're through. 
and it just smiles all around. Mm-hmm. To boys, we're not going to say anything to them because they it's an opportunity we're going to steal from them of what they're going to learn when they go out. And it's one of the reasons why the Aboriginal women, when the boys in ancient times were taken away from them, would cry because they weren't worried about the, uh, the son's uh, health. They knew the men would look after them. But what they realised was that uh, a boy went away, but a, a boy doesn't come back, a man comes back. They've still got a son, but he's a different relationship from that point on. Mm. And so there is a feeling of, to the women of a loss. But to the boy, there's a, um, it's, a, it's a rebirth. And that's firstly what I went through, funny enough, because that boy that I mentioned before that I massaged was 14. What I didn't know was he'd already been through his rite of passage, so he was classed as a man. Okay. I'm 48, going on 50 around that area, and uh, he's um, uh, on class as a boy because I haven't been through it. And the, the, the humility that goes with it is as well is once you go through that process, they call you a man, but it's like having an empty ledger and a, a, um, a pen. You start writing your story from there. So you're always in that process of becoming a better man, not trying to be the man. Do they take many Caucasians, you know, white fellas out there? Started to take more around then um, because it came down to the fact that it's a part of their culture that was stopped is due to white man and civilised, you know, the um, civilization and the uh, reservations that they created as well, the homesteads. And the end result was that if we look at today's society, it's one of the biggest uh, things that we miss. The boys don't have a rite of passage. Now, girls do to a certain degree because they have that um, time with their, their mothers and with their aunties and other women, whereas boys were, you know, we used to go out hunting with their father. Fathers are shop- working now, so they don't take their boys to work. And they're not talking to the boys because they're out there bringing in as much reserve you know, resources as they possibly can for the family. And so we've got another problem with the men. They show their love to the family by being absent. You get the resources and bring them home and then being told that they're physically and emotionally absent. It's a no-win situation for the men. And because we've been you know, told to, uh, as we grew up, to suck it up, toughen up, keep it to yourself, boys don't cry and everything goes, that we've pushed so much problems down into our uh, the male psyche that when it does erupt, it erupts in the wrong way. We've lost those skills of communication. And obviously you're speaking from experience through all the years prior and also your marriages. Yeah. See, I can't talk about other people. I can talk about my experience and what I went through. So when I talk about any stuff, it's a, well, it's definitely a reflection of me, of what I went through. Um, as far as uh, other people speaking, that's their their place to do that, not my place. Mm. And my job, you know, as a, yeah, another human being, if somebody needs to speak, is to facilitate that space where they can do just that, hold their space, no judgment, no criticising and no uh, direction from me at all, but listen to them and in a way in which they can find the answers that they're looking for. As I say, they, they become their own healer. Mm. Mm. Well, you obviously learnt that through this time with the Aboriginals and it sounds like it was uh, it took time because there was a year of you doing the camp out before you did the initiation. And then it's been an, an ongoing side of that because I've, I've uh, been involved with all sorts of uh, groups in the past, even bike gangs and others. All of my experience has been um, a school of life 
Uh, there's been a lot of uh, formal education, but everything that I've done always came with experience as well. So it was the difference between having uh, uh, just knowledge, and I hope that uh, that is, with all my experience, has turned into a bit of wisdom as well along the way. Mm. But that's for other people to uh, tell me whether they see that as that or not. Not my place to say it. After the initiation, was that kind of the start of the new phase of your life? It started, it brought together from being just in the material world to understanding there was more to life. There's a spiritual side of things as well. And it's like two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Like you can't have an inside without an outside type thing. Mm. And so things go hand in hand. But, you know, we spend most of our life, and I did in my first part, it was chasing the material world. It wasn't, uh, and it was always the world outside of me. It was never the world inside of me, and it was never more of a spiritual approach to things. Since then, I've had connection to a lot of different societies, including the Buddhist communities, and a lot of great friends that have come through all of that as well. And it's only because I've stepped back and allowed myself to um, uh, listen and learn from everyone, whereas before I was trying to uh, just learn and tell everybody else what they should be doing. I just turned that around. Through the journey, Alan, from and I guess the transition from you having, you know, the first part of your life where largely you like you retreated, you, you dealt with everything on your own, you didn't communicate extremely well or very effectively, from what you've said, and then getting through a whole lot of years of learning and and changing and being able to then have a start a better relationship with yourself. What what was the thing that took you through? If there was something, was it a deeper faith, a belief, a knowing, something that actually pulls you through from where you were to this completely new, I guess, life? It was when I, in my early years, it would have been that um, uh, desire to have a relationship that kept on moving me forward, thinking that other people got relationships, you know, sooner or later we're going to get one. If I keep doing something new, I'll get a different result. But then I looked at in the later years, it was not so much that anymore. It was realising that to have patience and if I focused on other people, helping them, that it's a bit of the old saying of givers gain. The more people you help, the more that you know, they'll help you. It's like having a bank account. You can't take money out of it until you put money into it. And so I realised that, and I started talking to a lot of people, especially out bush, they started talking about their backgrounds and everything else. And when they talk about where they've come from and what they've been through, I started to realise that everybody's got a story and everybody's story is different and therefore everybody's story is valuable. And that led me uh, through those years to keep wanting to know more about other people. I'd learnt not only um, I had my NLP masters that I picked up, I'd worked with colour therapies and sound therapies that I'd uh, taken into places like the Singapore Hospital for the kids with ADHD. I'd moved into um, looking at, at other races and religions mm-hmm. and uh, understanding uh, what they went through, sitting around a campfire and just letting somebody talk and not say anything uh, in return, just letting them uh, take the conversation where it needed to go. I've done that for many years, and it was about four years ago. I thought, right, how do I make this a little bit more formal or a bit more uh, realistic? Instead of just doing this, how could it be a bigger impact? And that was when I decided to uh, create the Campfire Project. 
because, as I, as I said, worked through with the Aboriginal side. After I came out of there, I was a Freemason for a while, and Freemasonry was about brotherly love, relief, and truth. It was about helping men to become better men. Mm -hmm. So I thought, what a natural blend, bring boys into manhood and then help them become better men. I realised that when I was helping other people, I was learning so much. So if I wanted to find more answers about where I needed to be and what I wanted to understand about myself, I did it faster when I was helping others. Yeah. And so with the Campfire Project, invited men in to tell their stories uh, you know, without judgment, without counselling, without criticism. And in those conversations, I learned a lot from them. I realised what they'd been through. And I look back at my stuff, you know, like I mentioned, trying to commit suicide at the age of nine was nothing compared to what some of these uh, men have been through. Hmm. And I started putting things in perspective a little bit more. So it was the less focus on me again. Then when I brought them into panel discussions and realised that the wisdom that those men had when they felt safe to be able to share their stories and then uh, step into those. But um, I'd had women in the group from day one, not because of any other reason, the fact that I didn't want to be a men's group. Mm -hmm. I wanted men to feel safe to be able to tell their stories, but I also wanted the women to hear how they could speak when they felt safe to do so. You might say I was trying to help all these other men to achieve something that I'd never had the opportunity to achieve myself, and that was to have uh, women listen to me. You know, two divorces, a lot of broken relationships. I wasn't batting you know, real well in that game. Mm. And so um, if I could help other men, and in that, that was when the women started sending me personal messages going, we've heard these men's uh, stories. We love the fact that they can talk so deeply about their emotions. And at the same time, we're fascinated that they, they talk with such wisdom about how to improve communities. Can we get involved? Which was my plan from the beginning waiting for the men to step up first and then when the, uh, they were ready, then get the women to come in as well. And in four years now, we've had over 500 hours of uh, conversations, one-on-ones mm -hmm. -on and panel discussions. We've uh, got all genders, all religions, all cultures. We've got all ages. The oldest person I've interviewed, 99 years old. The youngest one to actually conduct an interview where he interviewed his father with his own questions and held the interview for about an hour was nine years old. You know, as I said, all genders, all religions, all cultures, no bigotry, no sexism, no racism, and not once in all of those conversations anybody being disrespectful to anybody else. So I created the environment that I never had as a kid that I was always searching for. Yeah. And because of that, now I'm backing away because I also realised that a leader's job is to make themselves redundant mm. by raising others up so that they can do what uh, you were doing beforehand and hopefully do it better than you did it. Mm. And that's what we've got the Campfire Project. So we've got both men and women who are doing one-on-ones, like conducting them, running panel discussions, bringing people together, which may allows me to step back and do a little bit more in other areas. And at the same time, we've now got the uh, Business of Smiles, which is now a charity that's come out of the group, of which I'm one of the three directors on that. So my 68th birthday, they pulled a surprise on me and there were people from all over the world coming to that birthday party on Zoom. It was right in the middle of COVID. And on my 70th birthday, they had a big Zoom meeting and I thought, well, they couldn't beat the previous year. They did. They had video after video of people from all over the world, you know, thanking me for what the campfire meant to them and what the relationship meant to them. 
So when I stopped trying to build the relationships, they came flooding through the door. While I was chasing them, it's like, well, I suppose like chasing a fox. You chase a fox, mm. it's going to run. The moment you stop chasing it, it will stop to have a look and we'll see what's going on. And when I stopped chasing it, the fox came back. How rewarding was that, eh? Mm. It, it, it's, um, it's so beautiful, Alan, hearing all of that. And I love how curiosity and a genuine desire, like you said, just took you through and you always wanted to learn about other people and understand them because obviously that was the thing that was missing from you as an early age. And so you needed mm. to understand how humans operated and connected and what, how emotions played into it and how we could get along. And you've created this beautiful, diverse group of humans who can share in, in a most loving way. That's just gold. Mm. So in, you know, that need to be able to build relationship, that led to me becoming a profiler and learning different skills to be able to read people the way I do. So now I can look at a child and recognise if something's going on pretty quickly. And then through conversations and getting the right people around them, we can then uh, work around the issues that are affecting their child. So, again, I'm now able to do for a lot of uh, uh, other people what I can never do for myself. And that was also a lesson to me as well is that quite often we spend so much time trying to do things for ourselves when if we stopped and we trusted the people around us, got the right people to come together, we would have their support and life would be so much easier. And doing it together with others, which is why I created the hashtag We Together, the Campfire Project, because to together we solve the problems, not separately. So true, Alan. Um, it, it, it's almost like something that we've forgotten as a society, you know, the importance of connection and sharing and learning to trust and be open so that we can help each other rather than being these little isolated people trying to solve everything ourselves and do everything ourselves doesn't work that way. It doesn't serve us. If you take the, just the example of the, you know, um, being a man or the man, you know, when you're trying to be you know, the man, the same thing goes for the women who are trying to be the woman. They're, they're out to, they're competing with everybody else. They've got to be in front. And it's a lonely place. When you're in that position, you've got no real friends. You're always looking over your shoulder to see who's coming up to pass you. But if you're trying to be a man or a woman, you're trying to be the best version of yourself. And it's what your desire is to have other people like you around you. So one goes into very lonely, competitive place, and the other is a community. It's where there's a lot more joy. And when you bring people around you like that, Yes, you've then uh, got to learn how to trust people, but when you bring the right people around you like that, it's so much easier to trust. Couldn't agree more. There's a lot to, to take from that, Alan, and I, I'm sure that anyone listening to this can resonate and hopefully see how, you know, how you've demonstrated the, the solution that many of us really need because we're not born having or the skill set of human relationships. You know, it it doesn't come naturally to all of us. So I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and the journey that you've been on. Absolutely fascinating. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you very much. It's it's just a joy to hear. You've given me a lot of perspective, you know, and insights and learnings, which is just wonderful. I'm, I'm wondering if you were to look back 
on the journey um, and, and even before, you know, the pivotal working with the Aboriginals, what's been a silver lining for you? Well, I think the silver lining, when you look at all the things that have happened to me in the past, because I've only just touched on a few of them today, the fact that I've uh, survived has been a silver lining, you <laughs> might say. <laughs> it's, um, uh, I think the desire for something better is the one thing that kept me going. Otherwise, I would have given up a long time ago. But um, one of the things I did realise that changing the way I looked at things, like I was devastated when my second wife left. Mm-hmm. And it was that was, you know, at the turn of the century, that's about 20 years ago now when she actually left. And it was about six years ago, there was an opening of a um, health uh, uh, outlet here in Newcastle, a, a massage therapist and others. And I went along for the opening day and one of her ex-flatmates um, uh, from many years ago when I first met her came up and stood beside me. And uh, she turned around and she said, oh, she said, um, Caroline, I thought you'd like to know since she's found a new partner, she's really happy. Now, I know that I had the feeling that she was trying to have a dig, but all of a sudden I felt so warm and so happy. And then I realised that before that, losing her and the relationship we had and everything else, it was more lust than anything else. Mm. Now I understood what love was all about because I was so happy that she was happy. She found somebody that was really important to her. and. I realised that that would never have happened if I hadn't had the relationship with myself first. Mm. If I'd been looking for a relationship with others, I'd be like so many others who break up from their partners, I would have been uh, unhappy that she was happy, and that's mm. not luck. So oh. if I uh, could ever say that I loved her at that moment, I did. Oh, wow. So it's, um, and I think that's one of the things to realise, that so many people break up from their uh, partners, they're angry at them. Mm. If they've got children, They've got to be careful about what they say because they're telling their children that um, half of them is no good if they're whinging about yeah. their ex. Yeah. At the same time, if they're not careful, they're the ones that will lose that relationship with that child because the child will resent the fact that you keep telling that half of them is no good. Mm. It's, it may not be conscious, but it'll sink through unconsciously over time. Yeah. So realising that if we really do care about somebody, then we're happy to let them go. And that's made, that really cemented my relationship with my soul. What a wonderful, I guess, realisation and, and moment to, to understand and see that and feel it too. That's it. My first wife, when she left, I can be very angry. She told me that I wasn't good enough to be a husband and left the boys. Um, over the years, she came to me about six years ago. This is well after my second divorce. And she needed somewhere to stay for three months. And she said to me, Alan, You've got a spare room. Can I be a lodger? Just, you know, separate lives. As long as it's separate lives and it's three months. Anyway, she moved out three and a half years later. And people went, how in the world could you allow that to happen? You know, why do you even bring her in the first place? Well, I've got three sons who I love and respect, and the way that I treated her is a reflection on the way they will treat women in their lives. So yeah. I did it for that the first time around when I made sure the boys respected her when they moved back out of my place and moved back with her but also to make sure that um, uh, in that process it was all about me letting go of my stuff as well. And it was easy for me to change my decision on I was angry at her to the fact that if we hadn't been together, I wouldn't have those uh, three sons that I love and respect and I wouldn't have my six grandkids that I have now. 
And so therefore I could love her for that and not need to be in love with her and therefore no need to be angry with her either. And that was why I was able to cohabitate for three and a half years. I love hearing that. It's all decisions we make. It is, really is. Things don't happen to us. It's what we, um, decisions we make that happen to us, not what other people do. Alan, you've shared so many things today. If there's someone listening to this who has gone through anything, any similar challenge to you, and most of us go through relationship challenges as well, so I'm sure any, everyone listening to this can relate to something that you've said today. Is there any piece of advice that you'd like to leave them if they are going through that at the moment? Yeah, well, no matter what situation we have in our life, if we change the way we're looking at it, everything that feels negative, ask yourself what the positive side of it is because you can't have one side without the other. Look at that and then go, okay, if that's what the situation is, how can I look at this differently? What can I take out of this? Always look for where, what you, where it's taking you tomorrow. When you get caught up on what's happened in the past, that's when people feel lost and that's when they're likely to take their lives. But the other thing is find the right community as well. As I keep saying to people, what we do for ourselves dies with us, but what we do for others and for the community is and always will be eternal. And when you do that, you're part of that community. So what you do for the community, you're doing for yourself as well. Wow, what a beautiful piece of advice to finish on. Yeah, that's really, really strong and heartfelt. So thank you so much, Alan. My pleasure. It's been a privilege. It's been been wonderful. So I'm really grateful. Thank you for sharing and being here today. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below and join us next week for our next Heroes story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way. Only when it's broken Only when you're broken Only when